When the train left Tokyo Station, Tango took out the paperback that he had brought along. It was an anthology of short stories on the theme of travel and included a tale called Town of Cats, a fantastical piece by a German writer with whom Tango was not familiar. According to the book's foreword, the story had been written in the period between the two world wars. In the story, a young man is traveling alone with no particular destination in mind. He rides the train and gets off at any stop that arouses his interest. He takes a room, sees the sights, and stays for as long as he likes. When he's had enough, he boards another train. He spends every vacation this way. One day, he sees a lovely river from the train window. Gentle green hills line the meandering stream, and below them lies a pretty little town with an old stone bridge. The train stops at the town station, and the young man steps down with his bag. No one else gets off, and soon, as he alights, the train departs. No workers man the station, which must see very little activity. The young man crosses the bridge and walks into the town. All the shops are shuttered, the town hall deserted. No one occupies the desk at the town's only hotel. The, the place seems totally uninhabited. Perhaps all the town people are off napping somewhere, but it's only 10.30 in the morning, far too early for that. Perhaps something else has caused all the people to abandon the town. In any case, the next train will not come until the following morning, so he has no choice but to spend the night here. He wanders around the town to kill time. In fact, this is a town of cats. When the sun starts to go down, many cats come trooping across the bridge, cats of all different kinds and colors. They are much larger than ordinary cats, but they are still cats. The young man is shocked by this sight. He rushes into the bell tower in the center of town and climbs to the top to hide. The cats go about their business, raising their shop shutters or seating themselves at their desks to start their day's work. Soon more cats come, crossing the bridge into town like the others. They enter the shops to buy things or go to the town hall to handle the administrative matters or eat a meal at the hotel restaurant or drink beer at the tavern and sing lively cat songs. Because cats can see in the dark, they need almost no lights, but that particular night, the glow of the full moon floods the town, enabling the young man to see every detail from his perch in the bell tower. When dawn approaches, the cats finish their work, close up the shops, and swarm back across the bridge. By the time the sun comes up, the cats are gone and the town is deserted again. The young man climbs down, picks one of the hotel beds for himself, and goes to sleep. When he gets hungry, he eats some bread and fish that have been left in the hotel kitchen. When darkness approaches, he hides in the bell tower again and observes the cat's activities until dawn. Trains stop at the station before noon and in the late afternoon. No passengers alight and no one boards either. Still, the trains stop at the station for exactly one minute, then pull out again. He could take one of these trains and leave the creepy cat town behind, but he doesn't. Being young, he has a lively curiosity and is ready for adventure. He wants to see more of this strange spectacle. If possible, he wants to find out when and how this place became a town of cats. The next morning, however, the train does not stop at the station. He watches it pass by without slowing down. The afternoon train does the same. He can see the engineer seated at the controls, but the train shows no sign of stopping. It is as though no one can see the young man waiting for a train, or even see the station itself. Once the afternoon train disappears down the track, the place grows quieter than ever. The sun begins to sink. It is time for the cats to come.
the young man knows that he is irretrievably lost. This is no town of cats, he finally realizes. It is a place where he's meant to be lost. It is another world which has been prepared especially for him. And never again for all eternity will the train stop at this station to take him back to the world where he came from. Ho, ho, says the keeper of the beat. Ho, ho, the six other little people join in. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. It's Monday night, August 1st, and this is our third installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. This time, I am again joined by my friends at the book, artists Dennis Cook, S.J. Anderson, and Talitha Wall. We'll link to their pertinent information naturally in the show notes. Talitha chose our book, this time 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami, published in, in the English translation by Knopf in the United States, as a single volume on October 25th, 2011, and released as a three-volume box set on May 15th, 2012. The year is 1984, and the city is Tokyo. A love story, a mystery, a fantasy, a novel of self-discovery, a dystopia to rival George Orwell's. 1Q84 is Haruki Murakami's most ambitious undertaking yet, an instant bestseller in his native Japan, and a tremendous feat of imagination from one of our most revered contemporary writers. Uh, 1184 pages and almost 47 hours of audio. It was a beast. It was fun, and we have much to talk about. How is everyone doing this evening? Oh ho! <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. Great. Very well. Excellent. So, who wants to take a crack at the Cliff Notes plot summary? And maybe we should decide if if. Uh, if there isn't anything we sh- we feel we shouldn't spoil, or if we just decide to plunge ahead and and give the big sp- oh, we're spoiling, we're okay. still spoiling. It's, it's, this is a conversation of spoils. Yes. Okay, so if you don't want the book spoiled, then read it and come back to the show. But I'm sure this book this this show is going to help you understand the book. <laughs> if such a thing is possible. Well, and that's yeah, yeah. that's it. But so, does anyone want to try and summarize the plot so we just have a basic starting point? I'm tempted to throw SJ under the bus here and ask him to do it. Oh yeah, he's so good. SJ, give us a shot. Tell us what happened. Right. <laughs> I can try to give you a basic basic uh, story. I mean, uh, this is my yeah, basic it's... one line of the story. My tagline of the story is that this is a love story. It's a simple love story. But it's against the backdrop of a, like a Philip K. Dick or Dashiell Hammett-infused reality. I really liked the introduction you read there, Doug, about, uh, I forgot the terms you used, but uh, intrigue, mystery, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a fantasy book. Um, you know, and so there's these two people that uh, we learn. I guess out of the gate, we should say the way the book is structured is it's alternating chapters. The first two books of 1Q84, it's a three-book grand novel. In Japan, it was published in three separate books, but in America, it came out where all three books were combined into one big novel. Um, but the first two books of this big novel um, are in alternating chap- chapters with this character, Aomame. Uh, she opens the book. It's a chapter uh, written in a third person, but it's from her perspective. It's a close third person from her perspective. And then it alternates with this other character named Tengo. 
Uh, and he, so it's kind of got the woman, man, and of course, uh, obviously, um, maybe not obviously, but these are the two lovers. This is, these are the two characters that, um, as kids, went to the same grade school and shared some trauma um, growing up with in a single growing up in an environment where their needs weren't met, basically. She grew up in a Jehovah's Witness home. He grew up with a father that was an in, uh, a fee collector for the cable uh, tel- television service at the time or the media service in Tokyo. And so they shared these traumas of isolation in their childhood. Um, and so this book is about how they um, then separate uh, as 10-year-olds and then they slowly come together through the course of the book. Um, and finally falling in love and, and, you know, love wins the day. Let's say love wins. It would be the plot of the novel. Now, it's a very circuitous and strange path by which uh, they become reunited. And that's where all these other interesting elements in the novel come in. So why don't I kick it back to uh, one of you guys to kind of start, maybe pick a place to start, you know. <laughs> or, or, or Yeah, very well that. said, by the way, FJ. A tremendously brief way of summarizing an extremely long book. So yeah, with a lot of ins and outs and what have you. <laughs> I think. Hey, I guess I could just say quickly one other. I think very important part is that, and so in, in the book opens with Aomame in 1984. Um, she enters this cab, and it's a very strange world. She notices it's strange. She remembers the song on the radio as soon as the first few bars are played. It's actually a Symphonietta by Janosek, Leo Janosek, and she knows it. She doesn't know how she knows it. She hasn't really heard it. And so the book opens where Aomame is entering this strange environment, and then she climbs down from the highway, and we find out that she has gone from 1984 into this alternate reality called 1Q84. And so that's how the book... Though the the limo driver makes a point to say that there is only one reality um as this sort of prophetic information that he offers up but yes she climbs down a um a uh, exit um or like an escape exit from the interstate uh, a tunnel kind of tunnels down uh to this alternate reality but um there's this sort of prophetic thing that said you know there's only one reality despite what you're you're stepping into but how can she and tango tell that they're in an alternate reality. What is the what is the the little wink that gives it away? Well, there's what there's a couple cues. Um, one is that the um, there are elements that occur elements in the timeline of one Q eighty four that she doesn't remember. One of which is a gun battle um, uh, that involves the religious cult of Sakiga K with its sort of um, um, right or left brain partner, which is, um, uh, uh, what is it guys? Professor Ebisuno. Akebono. Yeah, but there's the Akebono, Akebono. Yeah. One is sort of this revolutionary inspired group and the other is this peace loving. Um, they, they're sort of offshoots of one another. Um, and there was, I mean, I think that's a whole story in itself, but, the, but, the, but Sakiga K becomes integral to the plot because it's, um, main, uh, leader is, is this figure called leader who is, who has a lot of similarities with Aleister Crowley, um, and some very specific language that references, uh, Aleister Crowley that maybe we can get into later. But, um, and then, uh, this is an integral part of the plot because Tango, uh, ghost writes a, um, 
a novel called Air Chrysalis with uh, Eric Eriko Fukada, which is the daughter of the leader of this religious cult, um, who Aomame later is. Um, she's a fitness instructor by day, but she's also a uh, she's worked as an assassin, um, killing people uh, through the connection of this uh, dowager woman who is um, acting out of uh, a sense of justice to kill people that she believes or some are proved to have been horrible, like uh, sexual abusers or women beaters and stuff. And she, she's not just randomly killing anybody, but there are certain cases that this was the only way in which they found the outcome to be appropriate. Um, uh, and so she eventually gets tasked to um, uh, kill leader of the leader of Sakigake. And, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how much of the narrative we can, get. there's so much to discuss. I don't, I don't want to just talk forever, but, um, the, the heart of it, do you think is the air chrysalis? So air chrysalis is, is this thing in the cult that's super important. And that's how the, yes. the voices are transmitted to the, uh, the little people. Yes, but Air Chrysalis is also this novel that's kind of an expose that exposes the cult and actually silences the voices. Exactly. Right, but yeah, and Tango is drawn into this because because this daughter of the leader from the cult writes the story, which is the expose, but then he cleans it up. He rewrites it. Yes. So that, but he's also creating the world that they end up in as he's doing it. Exactly. Yeah. Like he's creating this. Mm. I don't know what is going on with us in alternate realities. Every book that we. <laughs> this is the third alternate reality book club book. But why did you want us to read this, Talitha? Tell us why did yeah. you, why this book? I, I don't. I, I I feel like there's hostility in this question. Um, <laughs> everyone loves. Uh, I I thought this would be a great book because because when I read it originally, it ha- I had so probably more sync experiences at that time that had to do with the book than with any other like material object that I had um, you know read or had or owned or looked at or anything else, and I was. I found that to be really fascinating, and I thought, well, you know, when I had originally read it, I read it at the same time as a couple of other people as well, and we all had that going on, and and two of us in particular, and so I thought, mm, this this could be interesting. Let's see what happens. <laughs> it was less about the alternate realities, although that is sort of a, a thing for for me personally, but it was more just about the synchronicity aspects of it that I had, had um, encountered while reading it. Talitha, do you have any in particular that you remember that that seem they're worth relating? Uh, I had a lot of personal ones that maybe I won't relate, but but some of the less oh, yeah, personal yeah. ones were were things like you know when I was reading it, I would you know I ended up in these places, a lot of like restaurants or like random you know um, abandoned places in downtown Los Angeles, you know in an area that was just not a great area, but was sort of being gentrified and turned over. And, um, I just remember, you know, really bizarre things like how did I end up 
first of all, how did I even end up on this street in downtown LA? I don't know. And then now I'm at this place that is, you know, like a portal type place that like goes back in time. And then next door to it, there'd be, you know, this abandoned hotel. And then, you know, it'd be like written on the outside of the building. It was, you know, chrysalis. And I, I was just like, I don't even, like, where do you even, how does that even happen? Where do you even see that word on the side <laughs> of a building? Like, what, what kind of business is, I mean, you know, it was the former, it wasn't just like someone had written it and painted. It was, you know, the, the name of a business at some point or, you know, or coming out of another place where I'd never been before and there being, and, and it was bizarre too, because these places were usually shut down. Either they were not open at all, like they had not been open for years, or they were closed on a day of the week that didn't seem like they should be closed, like a sushi restaurant called Murakami or um, just things like that mm-hmm. that kept happening over and over and over again, where I would just be like, this is crazy. Like, how is this happening? But did you find, I mean, so the thing that I am wondering at the end of it is, what did it mean? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great question. You know, I have no idea, but I can say this. It has, no matter how much time has passed since reading the book, and it's been years since I read it, uh, A, I don't forget it, and I forget a lot of things. And B, I continue to have things that I question about it. Like it takes me deeper and deeper and deeper. I feel like there's, you know, it opens up to new dimensions and new layers where years later, something will trigger me to think of it. And then I'll go, Oh, I hadn't thought of this aspect of the book, you know, or looking at the two moons or looking at Yamame and Tango and, and the chapters going back and forth and that being yes, a love story, but also a very parallel, like masculine feminine and, how could that be, you know, possibly just one person and their, you know, their internal way of dealing with certain things or, or the story that they told themselves or one person who's inhabiting two timelines in an effort to, you know, it would just like, it never ends. It, it just, it's like the book never ended because there's so many questions and so many variables and so many possibilities and so many timelines that you could just go on. Like it's a, it's a book that never ends, which is kind of annoying, but also kind of great at the same time. <clears throat> SJ, what um, what did you like or dislike? And then what kind of meaning did you take away? Yeah, I, I would say I really liked um, near everything about it. So maybe it's more interesting to what I disliked. Um, but I, I will say just it's very well written. I was taken instantly when I opened it and saw how... Um, the prose flowed almost uh, effortlessly. Uh, I, I had been intimidated by the idea of a thousand-page novel, thinking I don't want to, you know, slog through something. And this thing just really breezed uh, by. Um, a lot of uh, so it's a very uh, easy read, but it, it's not a simply written book. I mean, it's very dense with allusion and um, description and location. He's a so it's a master writer, clearly. And I had never read any Murakami, and so it just confirmed the reputation that had preceded him. Um, you know, I guess in terms of dislike, I think maybe, um, I mean, and, and this isn't something that's a strong dislike, but there is just a lot there. And I'm not used to reading novels that have so, so much happening. And so maybe there's moments where it gets off course briefly. Um, I say that with an asterisk because I do think it all ends up working, but that might be one criticism. Um, in terms of what I 
um, think it means. I mean, I just go back to this theme of love, and, and I think love uh, is such a simple aphorism and truism that you hear all, all over culture. You hear it even in Crowley, for instance, love, uh, what, uh, do as thou wilt, love as the law, love under wilt. There's allusions to the Beatles in this book at a certain point. There's a reference to, like, all you need is love. Um, at one point, there's a key scene. The key scene, so out of all the three books, it sort of culminates in this event, which is kind of like a tantric sex ritual between the leader. All the characters are involved in this, this sex ritual. Some of them are having sex with each other. Some of them are having kind of etheric sex, kind of in the, in the tantric way where you actually, there's no intercourse, but the souls are sort of uniting in this ritual. And through this, this, and this is right in the middle, I think it's right at the end of book two, but through this um, sex ritual, there's a star child that's born um, that later is the, it's, is, so Ao Mame gets um, um, implanted with a, um, not implanted, but I mean, there's, there becomes a, a baby growing in her womb. And Ao Mame had no physical intercourse. And, but Tango has intercourse with Fuka Iri, the, the woman whose novel he ghost wrote, or, uh, and and so, but anyhow, I'm just, just to throw that out there, but the point is during the uh, time when Aomame and Leader um, are engaging in this long, where she kills Leader, there's an hour-long session of, of massage where they have this very um, deep discussion, and he asks her, you know, she says something like, what, what's the meaning? And he says, well, you've got love, you know, and that's, that's the meaning. I mean, you've got love in your life, that's going to save you, basically. He asked her, do you think love is all a person needs, which SJ and I and, and Talitha as well have discussed as a very obvious Beatles reference. Of, um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just as a theme, and you're pulling back, that seems to be a theme. The world's crazy. I mean, we dream, we live, there's all this insane stuff happening. But if you can sort of hold love in your heart as a grounding anchor and guiding force, that's what I took away. And it was a sweet message. I was kind of emotionally triggered, I mean, in a good way at the end feeling some emotion and that felt really good to be feeling emotion in a, in a book. <laughs> so. Who was your favorite character? I would say for me, it would be uh, Tango. I, I really liked Tango. I liked um, uh, how he was sort of uh, innocent in a way. He didn't understand the complexities of everything that was happening. It was sort of happening to him. Even though he chose to participate in, in, in the ghost writing, he sort of had a very a purity to his character of, I'm just a writer, I just want to create, leave me alone, I'm going to teach math a couple days a week. And, you know, and then he gets caught up in this. And I don't think he lost that sort of purity of spirit. Um, you know, and I think he found his love for Aomame, and when he saw it, he sort of went with that loving energy. At the, at the end, the scene where she's sort of leading him back up the portal, I thought was a powerful metaphor for the book too, because he sort of gets caught up in into this and sort of lets love overcome him and sort of gives himself over to it. So Tango was my favorite. Um, anybody else want to take a, a stab at that? <laughs> since since he turned it around so nicely in book three, we we met a guy named well, I think we met him before, but Ushikawa, who was the uh, the what was it the. Oh, Private eye. Was, private detective. Yeah, yeah. but I want to. Whatever his business card said was just magical. <laughs> you know the Japanese performance of scholarship or something. It was, but yeah, yeah. he was like Tango is this perfect. He's perfect in every way. 
You know, he's great at music. He's great at karate. He's a wonderful writer. He just needs a way into his own soul to understand, you know, so he needs to, to reach himself so that all his skill formulate can... his will. Yes. Yeah. But Ushikawa is grotesque and it seems like his life completely, he was like the opposite of where they, would she calls him bobblehead. Aomami calls him bobblehead. <laughs> but just, I like the way he thought and he's in the hotel room and you, you see him with his sleeping bag and his beans. And he's like, he's really, it, it was like, Oh, I, I can dig on the steak out here. SJ had an interesting thought about him. SJ, do you want to share that? That kind of where the there's a part of dialogue um, when he is dead, laying on the when Ushikawa is dead, laying on the thing. And oh, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about, this, SJ? Yeah, this is just at the end there, and this Ushikawa was dead. They've taken him back to Sagigake, so Ushikawa ends up getting killed. He fails at his mission, and um, yeah, it's kind of a bittersweet thing because he is very likable, and then you have to see him get killed and lose, and that was that was a sad part of it, but. You know, in the novel, anytime there's italics, uh, it's thinking all throughout the novel. Italicized text is the thinking of the character, so it becomes first person, and so any character can go into thinking. But at the end, there's a scene where the leaders of Sagigake, we know there was the leader who was the cult leader, but then there was these other leaders that were kind of making decisions at a higher level. And one of the killers of Ushigawa, this gangster, takes him back and then meets some of these higher level uh, people in the cult. And those people are speaking in italics. And so to me, it raised the question, are these entities, are these even people? Is this thought communication? And, that's, and, and just to say, this novel is very steeped in like cult mythology, uh, power structures of society behind the veil, gangsters. And so if you're into that, you really like this book. But um, yeah, that was a, that was it, I think, Doug, right? That's the one you were thinking about? Yeah. There, and yeah. Well, I'm curious, like the mysticism references too. Like every every 20 pages or so, uh, you know, Golden Bow, <laughs> Carl Jung. Golden Bow. Yeah. <laughs> a big image of this book, almost the image that uh, stays with the novel and it's in the media of the novel are two moons. So that's how they distinguish yeah. between 1984 and 1Q84 is that in the world of 1Q84, you look up in the sky and there's like a little green moon like to the lower left of the big moon. And um, I thought that image, um, it's just a striking image. I've seen some artists' renditions online, and it's just a very powerful image. And in the tarot, of course, there's two moons. The moon is bifurcated, so two of the trumps are associated with the moons, one by name and one by astrological association. So I'm just, uh, yeah, it's another level of the mysticism reference there um, that Doug was referring to. What about dislikes? Did you guys dislike anything in this? Talitha? I think, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Um, what about the I sex th stuff, I think, too? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I think, I think, well, I had a lot of feelings about, also, uh, you know, in terms of the, the sex stuff where, you know, the, the leader is talking about the girls, you know, where it's, it almost seems like he's saying, you know, they're using him to impregnate themselves. Um, and I think <laughs> I think that was a hard like a hard pill to swallow um, uh, for multiple reasons, some of which I won't go into, but. Um, also just the idea of saying like, you know, basically a child is, um, yeah, I think that, that in and of itself, just that, that simple 
thing of like a child is trying, I'm having sex with children, but they're using me thing was like, I don't know, that was tough to swallow because it almost felt like, you know, the way in which some people can use denial or twisting or, or people in power positions, leadership positions using, you know, this like, you know, God tells me to, or guides tell me to, or my God or whoever tells me to do this. And I'm just, you know, doing what I'm supposed to do the, the righteous thing. But, but, you know, if anyone wants to question it, then, then I either have that to go on or, or, or this idea that, that he was being used. I don't know. It's just that, that was a tough part for me. And I think just sometimes yeah. the book felt really heavy. Um, and oh, I don't know if that's a dislike. Um, so yeah, maybe sometimes it's a dislike. Uh, other times I like it. <laughs> um, but the book at times did feel really heavy in those respects. Like the, the young females in the book all seem like they're dealing with such heavy, situations not just sexually but things like assassination and these are really heavy themes um for young women to be sort of like carrying and so as a female i think maybe that's that 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 hit home in ways that that i didn't enjoy and didn't like thinking about um but i also like being being uncomfortable and and put in a position to think about and and perceive things in a different way so so, Talitha, I would say that one thing I would say to what you said, and you, you're hitting on what I think is probably one of the most, uh, like, um, like I, I was like kind of stunned at this aspect of 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 the of the narrative, just because it was like shedding a light on a, a possible motive of something that I had never considered, and it's also embedded in the because the dowager is seeing this situation from one particular angle, yet leader himself, it has a totally different perspective. And I would say that I'm not sure if leader is leader saying that, um, I feel like leader saying that the group is using these girls to try to, um, no, also not, not the, well, explain that to us, the little people, how, what is an air chrysalis? How do they make it? And then what happens? Uh, well, I mean, and I mean, as it's said in the book, in Air Chrysalis, these little people come out of the mouth of a, a dead goat, and they, well, in, they can come out of anything dead, apparently. I don't know. It's, come out of Ushikawa, and there's, yeah. And there's, yeah, 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 yeah. But, and there's seven of them, so there's a seven dwarfs reference, and they even sort of act like that. But they, they pull these threads out of the air. It's like tuning, it's... It's like a metaphor for, I mean, for creating some, uh, something creative. But in the book, it's literally described as pulling threads out of the air to make a cocoon. And in it grows a, what is called a ma, uh, dota, dota. dota. There's a maza and dota relationship, which is a very profound element of the book that's hard to explain. But um, And maybe somebody else can explain it better than me. But um, what grows in this this chrysalis is the dota and it has a relationship to the it's like a clone of the person though maybe just a aspect of the person that is a mental projection because there are two other characters you use the expression irretrievably lost in the introduction and there's two other characters um that uh that that is referred to in the book one is um uh tango's mistress who disappears and or is uh, who who stops visiting Tango and uh, his 
her husband calls him on the phone in this sort of uncomfortable conversation when you're confronted by the husband of your mistress. And he says, you know, she is irretrievably lost and will not be coming back, which makes me wonder if she, his mistress was a protection of his own mother, which is a big relationship. And then, you know, that's, that's an undertone of the book and often talked about. And then, uh, Subasa, who is another young girl who supposedly escapes the cult, um, who it's later talked about uh, as p- returning leader just says she is return is brought back to the cult and she like basically disappears from a safe house um, m- much to the like which greatly upset the uh, the dowager um, character. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of plot that I'll just explain real fast for listeners. So the dowager is like the person that hires Aomami to do these hits. And basically they're doing hits on uh, men who have done horrible things, but there's no way to prosecute them because they're above the law in some way. And so they go above the law, and Aomami has this magic skill to hit a, a pressure point with a needle and kill them instantaneously. Um, but the leader... So basically one of the the cult maidens come out of the cult and the dowager has a safe house for all these abused women. And that's why she employs Aomami to do these things. But this is where they realize, Oh, the leader is using young girls for horrible, horrible things. And what we need to do is kill him because this is, this is the only way to rectify this situation. Yeah. But th- then there's the twist once Aomami gets there and he says, I've been waiting for you, basically, because, you know... Yeah, he's, like, wanting her to kill him. Yeah. He doesn't want to be the leader anymore. And he, it, the, the yeah. idea is that maybe... Uh, what did you say the 10-year-old girl's name was? That was it Zubasa. Safe? Zubasa was not even a real person. That's, the Dota's yeah. aren't... But, I mean, that's another way of saying... It, it's like othering something. You're not even human, which... <laughs> Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, from one level, totally. from a sci-fi level, okay, this is like a a golem that they create. Or, but you know, from another point of view, they don't even see these people as human. You know. Yeah. And That's actually really well said, Doug. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it completely like that. Yeah. But then there is the sci-fi element because she just she does kind of just disappear from the safe house, and I think the little people blow up tomorrow's german shepherd yes yeah and then but then also you know like later in the book when he the the nurse he connects with in the town of cats is this uh nurse adachi and it's sort of alluded to that she might be the projection of his own mother again like so i don't know there's (laughs) there's, who who is what i mean there's some conflicting i don't know go ahead t I was just going to say, I tend to go back to like a, a theory that it's all one mind, it's all one person, like split into different levels of consciousness at times, going in and out, and like the relationship with themselves, uh, themselves, and um, and so you know, even sometimes like the thought text. I've I've thought about. I haven't done this, but I've thought about going through the book and like reading it. Like just the italicized stuff, reading that through the book and like see what I get out of only reading that section or 
like, you know, separating it and not reading any of the tango, only reading Ayamame or, you know, just doing some different things to try and catch things that I might not have caught before. Um, because sometimes I get to this place where I'm like, you know, there's all this different crazy symbolism. There's, you know, the, like, you know, the, the dead thing and the, you know, or dead person and then seven, seven beings and there's, you know, seven chakras. And when someone dies, you know, those seven, supposedly, um, those seven chakras close up, but, uh, then the energy that is left that, you know, isn't done, that's going to come back around another lifetime, like folds up and, and then, you know, saves its leftover work for another lifetime. And so the idea that, you know, the number seven is used and then, and then they're pulling strings. I mean, from a healer's perspective, like I could go into what all of that could possibly be about, like recreating another life form from the leftover, like un, uh, unfinished life business, you know, of, of something that's passed on or, you know, I don't know. But I sometimes go back Alamami, to the that- lives on Ring Road 7 at one point. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot, as you guys pointed out too, there's a lot of things like on the clock, a lot of the same numbers, uh, 237, 723, you know, that sort of thing. There's a lot of, there's just so much I think that can be broken up in this book, but I sometimes consider that possibly this is all one, like maybe the reason why, you know, she recognizes music, but didn't think that she knew it, you know, because tango is all about music. So, you know, I, I sometimes, and the, just looking at the parallel aspects of their life, I sometimes get caught up in going back to thinking, okay, this is one person or, or here's the projection from the dowager onto the leader that he's awful and terrible. But then, and, but then Aomame goes there and creates an introduction to him that that we get to see that is him aside from the dowager's projection of him, which is, you know, he feels terrible. And so then it brings it back to like this blending thing of like she projects onto him this darkness and then he kind of opens up this lightness about him. So then then it melds together. Which one is he? You know, then there's Aomame and Tango, which in my mind tends to go back and forth. Like, which one are they? Because to me, they seem so connected as one. Um, so there's like a lot of themes like that of just not being able to decide which, how many of these minds or dimensions are, are, are actually meant to be that or how much of it is meant to be maybe one mind with many ways of trying to cope with having possibly gone through some of this as a reality and therefore being split. Um, and in that mm -hmm. split, you know, living with many different realities and trying to find a way to thread it all together um, and still remain somehow intact or even maybe trying to find answers of things that are like suppressed. And interesting too hey, that Doug, the dowagers... The quote from Leader describing Subasa was, what you saw was an outward manifestation of a concept, and then he called it a living shadow. Those are two things that Leader described Subasa as. So, but go ahead, T, sorry. Uh, no, I was just thinking, you know, the dowagers out there trying to, you know, uh, rectify or bring justice to, you know, this su these supposed bad things that are happening, and... Um, and yet it is interesting that she finds Aomame uh, and is sending her out to kill people. And I understand there's like a justice in that, but, but it's also, this is a young woman that you're sending out, you know, to have murder someone or 
many people. Yeah. To be fair, Adamame had murdered on her own behalf before she met Dowager. And so these were, I mean, not, it seemed more like a, a partnership in a way. Yeah. Because they each had yeah. a separate independent reason to um, have killed, and Aomame had killed a man who had been an abuser for her, one of her very close friends. So, but yeah, I hear your point. But, that is a disturbing. But, but regardless of what Aomame had done on her own, I still think it's interesting that here's an older woman you know, you know, this, then there's an older man on the other end of it. Cause I kind of see the dowager and the, the leader as sort of being their balance, you know, sort of balancing points in the book, like Aomame and Tango are balancing points. I don't know if that makes sense, but interesting that he's, you know, considered a bad guy, but also she's, yes, it's in the name of justice, but having, you know, having, sending someone else out to murder. I don't know. I just have, feelings about that not yes, being sir. necessarily much better <laughs> yeah well and i think there's a theme of the book um where a leader says you know what's evil is really good something like that that light and dark rely on each other i mean at this height of the ritual it was a very kind of a moral relativism where evil might you know it's all about perceptions of events you know one man's evil is another man's or woman's you know highest good kind of thing and there's definitely that moral ambiguity, which is why I go back to the grounding of love. You know, I think love is less ambiguous. You know, I mean, there's there's questions of tough love and enforcing love through murder or whatever. But setting that aside, I mean, I think we've all loved something like a child. It's a pretty simple feeling to describe and relate to. Um, and I think that's a very grounding force uh, that kind of can circumvent these ambiguities. Well, that was 42 minutes. <gasps> no way. Ah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> we'll continue. So we'll keep beautiful. chatting, but thank you for sharing with us, book club. Uh. <laughs> You're very welcome. Thanks, Doug. You've been listening to the 42 Minutes Summer Book Club, a production of Sync Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure to check out my guest websites, to which I'll link for more information about the Sync Book. Our guests to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit the website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a Sync Book Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and cold or not, God is present.